Thank you. Well, good morning. Hey, as Blake said, uh, I'm Julie. And uh, thank you. I come bearing good and bad news for you this morning. The good news is um, we're all here worshiping together, right? But the bad news is the pastors who normally teach are out of town and you're stuck with me. So no spitballs, please. Especially you, Blake. Yeah. Um, But seriously, if you're new, if this is your first time, um, please come back again when we don't have a substitute going on. Um, And I I think you'll be blessed. Um, So on another note, has anybody ever heard of Opposite Day? Yes, you've heard of it. People have actually heard of this. Okay, so uh, apparently it's a real thing. I had never heard of it, but it's celebrated for those who know or care on January 25th. And um, there was a Seinfeld episode that was around this theme. Any Seinfeld fans? Yes, I like Seinfeld too. Anyway, um, so in this particular episode, George Costanza, who uh, realizing his life has gone nowhere... Um, decides to do the opposite of what he would do in any typical situation. And the end result was that this typically unemployed, horizontal curmudgeon George is transformed into an active, sincere, and honest person. And so as we pick up in our text today, Jesus is going to be revealing that the kingdom of God really works opposite uh, to the kingdoms of this world. And we'll see that if we, as his kingdom people, follow in his footsteps, our lives will reflect quite a transformation as well. So um, we'll be covering a segment of scripture today known as the um, triumphal entry. And that's where Jesus enters um, Jerusalem, announcing and embracing his identity as king of kings and lord of lords. Um, In doing so, he's going to provide us a picture that really redefines victory, success, and happiness in kingdom terms, providing kind of an alternate route for us, his loyal subjects. Last week, we saw Jesus heading into Jerusalem or towards Jerusalem. He stopped in Bethany to have dinner with his, his good friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, who he had raised from the dead. He saw, uh, well, we saw Mary exhibit this extravagant act of worship, pouring out this really expensive um, oil on Jesus' feet, anointing them and wiping it in with her hair. And Rob connected this with the practice of ceremonial anointing that's common in the Old Testament, um, smearing oil on the heads of kings, priests, and prophets. Um, signified that God had chosen them and set them apart for a really special purpose, a holy purpose. Um, And the fact that John in the gospel specified it was Jesus's feet that were anointed by Mary really seems to emphasize the inverted nature of this kingdom we're going to see in our text today. So um, as Jesus departs from their house and heads towards Jerusalem, we know that um, it's it's Passover and there are masses of people traveling um, to Jerusalem. Passover was one of three Uh, pilgrimage festivals that required all Jews who were able to to actually go there and celebrate together at the temple. Um, The Passover was the feast that celebrated um, Israel's uh, release from slavery in Egypt. Remember, God instructed the Israelites to um, smear the blood of a, a spotless lamb on their doorsteps to kind of protect them from the death plague that swept through the land before Pharaoh let the people go. 
Jewish history tells us that based on a census taken of the number of lambs slain uh, during a Passover, that there could have been upwards of 2 million people in town visiting. Um, We know Jesus had been avoiding Jerusalem because the authorities were looking to kill him. And um, all the more now, since he had raised Lazarus from the dead and everybody was, you know, very curious and interested. Um, Last week, we learned that they decided they'd just go ahead and off Lazarus, too, uh, because he was living proof of the power of Jesus. So we see the church leaders kind of devolving into using mafia methods to protect their positions of power. So literally with millions of people in Jerusalem and the word about Lazarus's resurrection spreading, Jesus heads in to finally make a very public announcement about his identity. So we're going to pick up if you've got a Bible with you today in John chapter 12, um, verse 12 through 22. So I'm just going to read it here to you. The next day, the news that Jesus was on the way to Jerusalem swept through the city. A large crowd of Passover visitors took palm branches and went down the road to meet him. They shouted, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Hail to the king of Israel. Jesus found a young donkey and rode on it, fulfilling the prophecy that said, don't be afraid, people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming, riding on a donkey's colt. His disciples didn't understand at the time that this was a fulfillment of prophecy. But after Jesus entered into his glory, they remembered what had happened and realized that these things had been written about him. Many in the crowd had seen Jesus call Lazarus from the tomb, raising him from the dead, and they were telling others about it. That was the reason so many went out to meet him, because they'd heard about this miraculous sign. Then the Pharisees said to each other, there's nothing we can do. Look, everyone's gone after him. And some Greeks who'd come to Jerusalem for the Passover celebration paid a visit to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee. They said, Sir, we want to meet Jesus. Philip told Andrew about it, and they went together to ask Jesus. All right, so there's a lot going on here. Let's try to unpack it just a little bit. Um, Like I said, this section of Scripture... Um, is known as the triumphal entry, and it's where our modern-day Palm Sunday finds its origins. Um, Palm Sunday is the last Sunday in Lent before Easter, and many churches give out palms to kind of recreate the celebration that we see in our text today of Jesus heading into Jerusalem on his way to the cross. Waving palm branches had become a common practice at national celebrations in Israel, Um, They were considered symbols of victory and triumph. And we talked about a scene really similar to this a few weeks ago back in John chapter 10 when they were celebrating the uh, feast commemorating Hanukkah. And Janelle gave us uh, a little history lesson there about the origins of that feast that culminated in Judas Maccabees and his small army defeating the Greeks who were in control at the time and severely persecuting the Jews. So when Judas marched into town, uh, the people were doing this very same thing. They were waving palm branches to celebrate their freedom and military victory over the Greeks. So in our text today, it's been about 100 years since Judas marched 
launched into Jerusalem. Um, and as we've mentioned many times through this study and lots of others, the disciples and all the people were really expecting Jesus to come as a conquering king like Judas Maccabees. And the words they're shouting, uh, praise God, blessings on the one who comes in the name of the Lord, hail to the king of the Jews. That's from Psalm 118, which is known as the conqueror's psalm. If you go to that psalm, it literally reads, Lord, please save us. Please, Lord, give us success. So they're celebrating here uh, Passover, remembering God's deliverance from Egypt. They're recalling their deliverance from the Greeks and they're crying out, oh, please deliver us. In other words, save us from these Roman oppressors. Um, And they rightly hail him as king of Israel. And this time, Jesus doesn't do his disappearing act into the crowd. You know, he's actually heading there on purpose with probably the largest audience yet affirming that he is indeed that king they've been waiting for. He accepted their praise and worship. And this time he's not rebuking anyone or saying, uh, as he did lots of times when he healed people, you know, Shh, don't tell anybody. Um, He chose to enter Jerusalem in a really specific way, it says, to fulfill an Old Testament prophecy. And um, it's actually quoting Zechariah 9.9. So we'll take a quick look at that. It says, Rejoice, O people of Zion. Shout in triumph, O people of Jerusalem. Look, your king is coming to you. He's righteous and victorious, yet he's humble, riding on a donkey, riding on a donkey's colt. And so riding on a donkey actually had quite significant implications in that time frame. So if a king came riding into an area outside of his reign uh, on a horse, he was bent on war. And if he rode in on a donkey, that meant he was coming in peace. And the other gospels record the account of Jesus sending some disciples to go get that donkey um, that he wanted to ride on. So it wasn't a last-minute decision like, oh, man, my, f- my feet are killing me. I think I'll hit you right on this donkey, right? No, it was a premeditated plan to fulfill Scripture, and it also gives us a glimpse into the nature of God's kingdom. See, Jesus could have ridden into town on a war horse. Um, he could have wore royal robes. Instead, he chose a lowly donkey clothed like the poor. He could have lived in a king's palace. Instead, he had no home of his own. He didn't seek out the popular and the powerful to carry out his mission. The disciples were common folks, just like us. He didn't demand respect. He laid down his life. Jesus came in humility and peace in stark contrast to the kingdoms of this world who conquer by force. So I think the first thing that we notice in our text today is that we reflect the kingdom of God when we walk in intentional humility. Humility isn't something we see a whole lot of today. Um, What we do see, what seems to kind of dominate our world, is the opposite of humility, which is Pride. pride. Yes, good. The need to be right, to prove our point, have the last word, seems to be a lot more prevalent the heightened hostility we see streaming across the airways uh, from the national level to right next doors, evidence of the diminishing respect we have uh, and downright intolerance for each other as human beings. And it's not just the politicians and them out there. It is so easy to fall into that same pattern, right? Um, hitting post after spewing our you know, strong opinions that are, of course, superior to someone else's, right? 
Humility is willing to defer to someone else's opinion. It's being willing to let things go, agree to disagree, lay down our right to be right, follow a different pattern than what we see um, so prevalent in this world around us. C.S. Lewis said this. He said, pride leads to every other vice. Pride gets no pleasure out of having something, only out of having more of it than the next man. We say that people are proud of being rich or clever or good-looking, but they're not. They're proud of being richer or cleverer or better-looking than others. If everyone else became equally rich or clever or good-looking, there'd be nothing to be proud about. It's the comparison that makes you proud, the pleasure of being above the rest. Once the element of competition has gone, pride has gone. I've seen this kind of work from another angle as well. Sometimes we set ourselves above other people by saying, well, at least I'm not as bad as so-and-so, you know. At least I didn't steal anything, or at least I'm not sitting at strip bars, or at least I didn't punch him, or at least whatever, you know. The list goes on. The thing is, we we shouldn't be worried about if we're not as bad as so-and-so, right? We should be worried about if we're as good as Jesus, and that's the only comparison we're really called to make. And I think that will humble all of us, right? So the question is, how are we doing? Are we conforming to his image? Do we look like the Prince of Peace riding in on the donkey? Or are we using our tongues to cut like a sword? It's good stuff to ponder, um, In verse 16, it said his disciples didn't understand at the time that him riding in on the donkey was a fulfillment of scripture. They just put that together after the resurrection. So if someone had come up to them and said, hey, what's up with the donkey? You know, hopefully they would have had the humility to say, I don't know. You know, we don't have to have all the answers. God isn't worried about us having all knowledge and defending him at every turn. He, he's concerned about us revealing his character and pointing others to him so he could do the rest, right? And that's exactly what Philip and Andrew are trying to do in our text, however awkwardly. Um, the crowds were going crazy for Jesus. The Pharisees were freaking out. And all of a sudden, John points out that some Greeks enter the scene so let's take a quick look there again it said some greeks had come to jerusalem for the passover celebration and paid a visit to philip who was from Bethsaida, basada i don't know how to say it somewhere in galilee they said sir we want to meet jesus and philip told andrew about it and they went together to ask jesus so some commentators say that maybe the greeks approached philip because his name was greek And others say maybe it's because he's from an area that was predominantly um, Gentile or non-Jewish. Either way, the whole exchange is a bit awkward. um, And it wasn't really common to see Greeks or non-Jewish people at Jewish festivals. They had questions, which is good. They were seeking Jesus, which is awesome, which seemed to prompt him to reveal his identity um, as king of the world, uh, Greeks and Jews. And we'll see that as we pick up in the next verses. Verse 23, Jesus replied, now, has the, now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest of new lives. 
So with all the hype and the hopes mounting as Jesus rides into town, being hailed as king, he finally opens his mouth to give his inauguration speech. And he says, well, it's time to die. You know, I'll ascend to my throne through death. And that had to be like a massive record scratch. Um, It was a morbid message, right? And I imagine maybe all the hailing and praising stopped. Maybe there was a dead silence or maybe there was a loud, huh? from the crowd or most likely they just ignored it thinking yeah yeah he's talking crazy again uh let's just get on with this insurrection thing jesus you know it it they couldn't have possibly known what he meant it doesn't make any sense no king conquers or reigns through death um jesus is using another um example from agriculture there he uses the image of a seed that gets planted or buried in the ground its outer shell or the kernel dies and then the germ sprouts and grows into a full-fledged plant full of new seeds filled with that very same potential now it's that mysterious process of life coming through death of forgiveness and reconciliation being born out of sacrifice The Bible tells us that on the cross, Jesus took all the consequences of sin on himself, defeating death and the devil. So it turns out he was a conquering king after all, but he was going after a much more formidable enemy than Rome. He defeated the enemy of our souls, the author of sin and death, and his weapon was a cross. And it's difficult to understand how this worked. Rob, you know, Rob refers to it as C.S. Lewis did in the Chronicles of Narnia as a, a deep magic. Something not fully understood, but there since the dawn of time. And while we don't get the full explanation in scripture of exactly how Jesus' sacrifice redeems the world and defeats the enemy, it helps to know it's been the plan all along. Um, back in Genesis, we remember God put the first two humans in a garden, a veritable paradise, uh, where he lived and walked with them. He set two trees there, remember? Um, and eating from the tree of life meant trusting God's wisdom, thereby living forever with him according to his ways. But eating from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil meant trusting in human wisdom, rejecting God's instruction in life. In Genesis 2, it says, if you eat from that tree, God said, you will surely die. And we know how that story went, right? The enemy came along planting a seed of doubt in Eve's mind. Remember in Genesis 3, the serpent told Eve, and I'm paraphrasing, you won't really die if you eat that fruit. God's just trying to keep something from you. He doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't have your best interests in mind. Go ahead. Have it your way. And that was that. They ate the fruit. The seed of doubt planted by the enemy led them to a choice that changed everything for them and us. They were evicted from the garden. Intimacy with God was lost. Shame, guilt, and death death entered the world. And that's where we still live today. In a broken world where God never intended us to land. But that's not the end of the story. Fast forward to where we are in our text today, and we see Jesus in response to that seed of doubt planted by Satan so long ago, providing us with a seed of hope, his life offered on our behalf to restore life as God intended it for all humanity. 
So I think what we see here is that Jesus' sacrificial death paved the way to renewed and everlasting life. And Romans 5 puts it this way. It says, yes, one sin, Adam's one sin brought condemnation for everyone, but Christ's one act of righteousness brought a right relationship with God and new life for everyone. Because one person disobeyed God, many became sinners, but because the other obeyed God, many will be made righteous. So even though we weren't there uh, when our ancestors gave in to temptation, I think we can probably all admit um, we're prone to go our own way. Now I'll be the first to admit I have made many uh, stupid and costly mistakes in my 50-something years. Um, But the beautiful thing is, before we even had a chance to sin, Jesus at the cross made a way of escape for us. He forged our forgiveness, restored our relationship with God, and promised us a renewed life that lasts forever. If we choose it, right? So even if we don't fully comprehend how death paves the way to life, I think we can clearly see uh, the powerful impact of our choices. Adam chose to go his way, but Jesus chose to go the Father's way, and the result was the difference between life and death. The choices we make determine the trajectory and quality of our lives, and we'll see Jesus drive that point home here in our next section. Let's pick up in verse 25 and 26. It says, Those who love their life in this world will lose it. Those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am. And the Father will honor anyone who serves me. So Jesus is employing some hyperbole here, just like he does in those passages that talk about hating family members. He's not implying that we should, you know, go around wishing we were dead or be careless or destructive with the life God's given us, but rather that our commitment to Christ should be more important to us than anything this world has to offer. And we saw that demonstrated last week by Mary in our text, risking her reputation and pouring out her most valuable possession on Jesus' feet. John qualifies that this life that's being hated or loved is life in this world, meaning life according to the ways and purposes, the priorities and standards of the world system. And conformity to the world is all about experiencing the best this world has to offer. You know, always worrying about who likes me or who doesn't like me or how many followers I have. Constantly trying to keep up with the Joneses. Always going for my best life now, insinuating that's the only one we have. Personal happiness, it gets better, I promise, guys. Personal happiness is the be-all, end-all game of this broken world. It's the air we breathe. It's written into our very constitution, right? We have the right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I'm not saying that's a bad thing. I'm so happy we have that right. Thank God for that. But the problem is personal happiness wasn't what Jesus commissioned us to pursue. That was the message of our enemy. In the garden, it was an apple the serpent was dangling in front of Eve. 
but the screens we gaze in today constantly dangle delights in front of our eyes too. Whether it's a shiny new car, that perfect diamond, maybe an incredible meal, the promise of romance, the perfect family, the budding career, the mansion in the hills, the Caribbean vacation, there's a snake in our midst too. Constantly at work, trying to deceive us into thinking we're going to find happiness in the things or circumstances in a life lived apart from God. But there is no life apart from God. So, Julie, are you saying if I have a nice car or go on vacation, I'm not following Jesus? No, that's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is we as kingdom people can't let this world dictate the purpose and source of life to us. God says there's more to us than the sum of our possessions or our circumstances. We have a higher calling. Romans 12 says, don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you'll learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. We're called to become a new person by changing the way we think. In other words, not buying the lies that this world is selling, but instead conforming to the image of Christ. That is the purpose of our life. Romans 8 says, God knew his people in advance and he chose them to become like his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. See, we're called to become family members who look like Jesus. Bearing his resemblance into this broken world. Sharing his love, his life, his hope. His mercy to everyone we come in contact with. It's the whole process of discipleship, right? First we believe, we we commit our lives to him, and then we walk out conforming to his image with the help of the Holy Spirit. The question we have to ask ourselves when we come to passages like this is, you know, how are we doing? Um, Every day we encounter choice points along the way, some small and some huge. With every choice, we either move closer to the image of Christ or more uh, conform more to the image of this world. So I think what we see here is that we reflect the kingdom of God by intentional sacrifice of self-will. Researchers um, show that however emotional people may have been when they raised their hand or responded to an altar call, Fewer than 4% after a few years reflected any change in their lives. Can't let that sink in a minute. Belief is something we do in our mind. Actually surrendering our life is something we can only do with our will. So the important question isn't really what we believe. We establish that. The more... Poignant question is what we decide to do moment by moment based on that belief. It's not about if we surrendered our life to Christ at some point in the past, but are we wholly surrendered today? Are we dead to the pull of the world's self-centered way of living? Or is any part of us still clinging? The only way we know is to look at the fruit or the symptoms, right? Are we living in love as Christ loved us and gave his life for us? 
Or are we still only living for self-interest? Are we only loving those who love us but still experience hatred towards those who hate us and apathy towards those we don't know? Do we have joy and peace right now or are we full of sorrow and worry? When we find that the works of the flesh, um, hate, anger, bitterness, jealousy, sexual immorality, drunkenness, host of others, all in Galatians 5. If those are present, it's usually because we're clinging still. We're clinging to something. We're putting our hopes in something this world has to offer. And when we figure out what it is, it's time to put the cross in its place. Remember Jesus' fateful words, not my will, but yours be done. Um, Our text said in verse 26, anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am. Jesus was on his way to the cross and he continues to invite us to come there. Um, In fact, Luke's gospel says, if you don't carry your own cross and follow me, you can't be my disciple. And he goes on to talk about counting the cost, insinuating that there... Uh, the Christian life is about not only Jesus dying for us, but us being willing to give up something for him. I remember being in a pretty bad disagreement with a family member many, many years ago. I can't even remember what it was about now. I'm pretty sure I was right, uh, of course. <clears throat> but what I do remember... is what God showed me the moment I chose to go to bed mad and leave it unreconciled. I saw this image of Jesus in my imagination. And it was really a poignant picture of him. Sorry. And it was if he was saying, this is what I did for you. Can't you simply say you're sorry? Well, that just cost you too much, Julie. And I hate to admit, I didn't do it right then. You know, I held on to my right to be right a little bit longer until the next day. And finally, I said, I'm sorry. Um, And honestly, did that apology make everything okay? Or restore the relationship? Not necessarily. But it did reflect the image of the one who could. Dying to self doesn't always guarantee a happy ending, not in this life, but it gives a glimpse of the glory to come. Every time we choose to return love in the face of hate, every time we choose to make peace and not war, every time we show compassion and not indifference, patience and not intolerance, we put on display God's unsurpassable other-oriented love revealed on the cross. And when we do surrender, we choose to die to self. We find the joy of caring about others, the well-being of others more than ourselves, the joy of living with outrageous generosity, the joy of getting all our life from Christ instead of sucking the life out of others. So I think the last thing we can glean from our text today is that a fulfilled life is found in sacrificial service to others. See, Jesus isn't trying to make us miserable or withhold personal happiness from us. He's showing us it comes from a different source. He knows that trying to find our significance, our security and wealth, or 
social relations, achievements, national identity, religion, or anything else is as empty as it is deadly. Ironically, when we start living in sacrificial service to others, we actually find that personal happiness we've been chasing all along. When we stop chasing after and just forget about it, uh, we end up getting it anyway. Matthew 6 says, don't worry about these things saying, what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear? These things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers. But your heavenly father already knows all your needs. Seek the kingdom of God above everything else and live righteously and he'll give you everything you need. And when we take care of others, he promises to take care of us. And not only that, the last line of our text today um, really contains the most incredible promise we could ever hope for. Jesus follows up his invitation uh, to follow him to the cross by saying in verse 26, And the Father will honor anyone who serves me. The Father will honor us. It must be opposite day. No, seriously, that word honor means to prize, to value. In other words, we're valuable to God as we live in sacrificial service to him. And man, if we're valuable to God, does anything else really matter? Knowing that we matter, our life matters, we are important to him, that we're here on purpose for his purposes. Man, I'm not sure that it gets any better than that. I can't think of any greater honor when this whole thing wraps up than to hear those fateful words. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. Now that will be the ultimate triumphal entry. So let's make that our mission, gang. Let's be determined to put on intentional humility. Let's refuse to let this world define success or happiness for us. And let's be purposeful about pouring out his sacrificial love to those around us. Sound good? All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you you so much for, for what you did for us, Lord. For how you gave your all. You gave your very life. God, we are that important to you that you would be willing to die for us. We can never express the gratitude, Lord. But help us to live out of that other-oriented, selfless love every day, God. Help us to remember what you did for us and be willing to do that for others. We love you, God, and we thank you. In Jesus' name.